This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Some real life stories, some expert guests for you on the show this afternoon. Are you a shopaholic? We asked Dr. Thraya to tell us when a shopping habit tips over into compulsive behaviour. Dr. Saeed from King's College was on hand to answer your questions on asthma. Do you really outgrow it? And what should proper management look like? We had Alex from House of Social giving her top tips for small business to come out on top this gifting season. And how important is postpartum care? An expert was live. This is the Psychology Hour, and if you are fortunate enough to do so, you probably shop for groceries, clothes, home goods and the like on a pretty regular basis, thanks to a very wide range of retailers offering their products online. Spending is it's pretty easy spending money right now. And if you're anything like me, um, the COVID pandemic might have um, peaked some of your some of your spending. 2020 online sales increased by 43 percent up on 2019, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. So maybe your retail activity contributed to that boom in sales, but maybe there's been a time or two or more that you questioned whether your spending has got out of control. So how can you tell if your shopping habit? is a problem. Joining us live on the line is clinical psychologist Dr. Thraya, joining us from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And I do not want you to look me in the eye, Thraya. This this program is not about me. It's about helping anybody else out there. Okay? Just because I pressed a few links over Black Friday and availed of some very good offers doesn't mean I have a problem. How are you? I'm well. <laughs> Were you saying all that to convince me? Helen, maybe, or, uh, maybe a bit of self-talk. Maybe some self-talk. <laughs> now, the, 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 the stats are quite staggering around how much we're spending at the minute. In 2022, the online global shopping market sizes can reach 5.5 trillion. Apparently, women are nine times more likely to buy compulsively than men. And around 96% of people admit they are making impulsive purchases, either in stores or online. So we're going to be talking shopping addiction this hour. And I wondered, um, is this is this a mental um, illness, this a shopping addiction? Is this something that's officially recognized, Raya? Well, I mean, essentially the shopping addiction in and of itself, not so much, but the idea behind a behavioral addiction that shopping is one of those behaviors is. So when you when you want to talk about addictions, I know most people think of addictions in terms of substances, in terms of alcohol, but in reality, we do have something called behavioral addictions, which is essentially very similar to substance uh, addictions, but instead it's just a different form. There's mm-hmm. a different kind of impulsive behavior that's being engaged in. Well, shoes are substances, but I wondered what's happening in our brain. You know, when we're looking, I mean, I, th- I think everyone listening today will will have had that that rush of dopamine when you click add to cart and you complete that purchase, or when you're at the till and you walk away and go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That was a bit of an anticlimax. So what do we know about what's happening neurologically when we spend? Well, I mean, actually, interestingly enough, shopping does have a tangible effect on the brain. So essentially, there's a lot of uh, evidence that shows that that dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter in the brain, surges not so much when buying the the actual act of paying for, but when 
um, anticipating the new purchase. This is one of the reasons why online shopping has been so addictive for a lot of people is because just waiting for the Amazon box or whatever box to come through, that's actually what is um, so exciting for a lot of people. And that dopamine surge is is uh, very addictive in, in general. We know that dopamine is, is the neurotransmitter for addiction in general. So um, this pleasure that we experience usually declines rapidly once we receive the actual uh, product itself and we end up going back into okay I want that hit again and it's really the, the equivalent of somebody getting high off of any type of substance and so the addiction itself can be very um, uh, repetitive mm -hmm. and consistent because of the fact that people are kind of looking for that dopamine rush, especially when they're experiencing a lot of sadness and a lot of difficulty and a loneliness in their life. They tend to to want that that dopamine rush that you can get from, from shopping. We're going to be talking about some of the causes behind it, but we're going to hear now from Jackie, who shared her shopping addiction online, talking about how stress at work and everyday life led her to those behaviours. Looking back at my life in New York... I just remember being a complete mess. So I come home with all that stress being 200%, but then I never took care of it. So I rely on shopping a lot of times and got addicted to shopping because that helped me forget temporarily the things that stress me out. I feel a sense of pleasure from hearing the doorbell ring and then seeing that box presented on my doorstep and then ripping it open and seeing that beautiful new dress all pristine and all all nice and trendy and I just feel all this bliss. A 2015 meta-analysis showed that approximately 5% of Americans were compulsive buyers with social media marketing, targeted ads, influencer culture, coaxing more people to buy things and one-up each other. This percentage is likely to increase. We're talking shopping addiction, um, compulsive behaviours on the show today with Dr. Thryer. She's joining us um, as with a, with a clinical psychologist hat on from uh, Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And we've had a number of concerned messages um, and a call. This is actually Sneha wondering if she is a shopaholic or not. So I love to shop. Um, some months are full on. It's constant. Some months I go completely cold turkey. So how do I know if it is an addiction or not? Because for me, there are ups and downs. So there are months where I can go without buying anything. And then there will be months where I just can't stop myself because I'm constantly finding things that I need to buy. I love the choice of language there about sometimes I'm full on and sometimes I'm, I'm cold turkey. So what are some of the questions that someone could be asking themselves or indeed a partner um, to establish if this is problematic behaviour, Thraya? I think it's important to kind of look at why are we um, buying the things that we're buying. And it, it's it's interesting to hear that the caller said, um, sometimes I just need to buy these things, right? And there, that word in and of itself speaks wonders. Because what are the reasons for for us buying whatever it is that we're buying? Is it really a need or is it more of a want? Um, we're also looking at the feelings that are associated with shopping or with buying new things. Am I feeling sad when I'm shopping? Am I feeling a sense of emptiness? Am I feeling a sense of loneliness? Maybe a s stress? 
Am I feeling a sense of anxiety? So attuning into the, the feelings that we have is very informative when it comes to looking at whether or not something is an addiction. And then also asking ourselves, what value is this bringing to my life? Why am I actually purchasing what I'm purchasing? Is it because there's something that's happening and I'm looking to fill this void kind of like you would when you're eating, right? So emotional mm -hmm. eating is, is similar to it. And emotional eating is, is kind of like, if you will, like a food addiction. So in essence, they're all very much the same when it comes to the, the, the bottom line or the foundation, which is what is the purpose of what we are doing or what we are engaging in right now? And that is such an important question to ask yourself, especially when it comes to shopping. What's that quote? We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Um, I want to go to the text line. And I say this with no judgment as someone who may have a something of a shopping problem. And no name on this message saying, my best friend always complains her husband doesn't spend any time with her and was always working. So as a result, she goes out and spends his money, knowing he'll receive a notification when the money's come out. I think she does it so she gets some sort of attention from from him. Interesting. Let's talk about this aspect of how it can affect relationships. That's going to be coming your way after mm. half past. It's not just about the impact it has on your bank account, on your debt. It is around those around you. Um, no name on this one saying for me, it's makeup. I have a bin full of, full of it. I've realised it's a problem. I'm just overcoming it because I've got a daughter on the way. Um, again, no name. Lots of anonymous messages this afternoon through it saying, I swear I have an Amazon warehouse in my bedroom. Health food store, beauty supply store. That's got next started on uh, clothes and shoes. Uh, my husband gets so mad, uh, but I don't know where this need comes from unless it's now just a habit. Um, interesting question here saying, I think my shopping issues come from a scarcity mentality as we grew up without much. Curious to get your take, Thraya, on that uh, kind of idea of now I have money and I want to perhaps get rid of it. You know, this kind of money mindset. Do you think that can come into play with the shopping addiction? Well, actually, I think it's a little bit of the opposite of that because it's not so much that um, I, I have money and I need to get rid of it. It's more the anxiety of not having something, so I need to buy to fulfill that. Mm. And so you can hear in in what she's in in what the message was saying was basically this idea of like we didn't have anything growing up, and so there's this anxiety with not having something. So then I end up buying. So. What we're doing is we, we tend to intellectualize why we do the things that we do, but we're forgetting a very important piece and a piece that actually makes us human, which is what we're feeling. Mm -hmm. And by ignoring our feelings, we're actually making it very difficult to understand the true nature of why we do the things that we do. Do you have onomania? It is the term used for compulsive buying disorder. We are talking about shopping addiction and talking treatment, how to overcome it next with Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, I want to go to the text line though before we come to solutions, Thraya. This is actually from social media that's come in saying, um, why is it that I feel the need to buy and hoard when I know it's not needed? I feel like I'm missing out. You're talking earlier about finding your why, whether it is overeating or perhaps compulsive shopping. What kind of questions should you be asking yourself to really ascertain what hole you're trying to fill? Well, I think what, well, the first thing that I would usually recommend is to do some emotional processing. And I, I have like these questions that I've created because I know that some people are always looking for something tangible. And I say, always name your emotions. And that's really difficult. Most people think they know what they're feeling, but they actually don't because our tendency is to go straight to sad, happy, angry. 
mm-hmm. or something similar. But in reality, we have far more deeper emotions that we tend to ignore. Feelings like emptiness, uh, disappointment, embarrassment, shame, uh, frustration, abandonment, things like that. And there's a beautiful feeling wheel on, I mean, like you can find it on any um, search engine and, and just kind of look at the images. But those feeling wheels will give us an idea of how we can name those emotions. And then when we re- recognize what the emotions are, we start to ask ourselves like, okay, where am I feeling this emotion in my body? How am I, ha- how am I actually experiencing this emotion? And then what thoughts are associated with those emotions? And those questions are really important to start to truly understand why I'm trying to run away from them. Because the more emotional processing we do, the less likely we are to engage in impulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that includes anything from shopping to eating to to substances to alcohol and things like that. Johan Hari, who I'm not a massive fan of because he came to Dubai and wrote a horrible article about it about 15 years ago, but he has gone on to do some really interesting work. There's a TEDx talk that I think is a really you know, fascinating insight. And he talks about the root of most addictions being disconnection. And I wondered what your take is on that, Thraya. Absolutely. Uh, addiction in general is really about escapism. So what we're really trying to escape from is this the pain and the suffering that we experience internally. And we're trying to numb that pain and, and, and dissociate from it. And because we're consistently dissociating during the day and not connecting to our emotions because it can be so overwhelming, we go into something and we, we either use substances or we, have, we engage in behaviors that end up numbing us even more. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as we start to come out of that numbness, we start to feel an, a massive amount of over, overwhelming pain. And then we go right back into the substance itself. Mm-hmm. And then that, that whole, yes. And, and, and it's just, it's, it's the process of addiction is so complex and it's so, uh, um, difficult to get out of. So it's, it's quite important to be able to catch it early on Mm -hmm. and minimize the amount of disassociation that you do within yourself. So let's talk treatment then. If someone was to come into you echoing some of the messages we've had today, um, where do you begin to, and, and kind of address it really. Is it CBT? Is it to do with putting some habits in place before you click buy or before you, you know, walk through the door of, of that shop? Can you give us some practical tips if anyone is concerned? So I, I think like initially some um, short term tips could be very helpful. Things like, you know, delaying the purchase or um, browsing. So window shopping instead of actually buying the thing itself I do or that. even things like <laughs> like a hobby I'm like Ooh, add to cart and then uh, you see the total and go or maybe we'll never complete this purchase <laughs> so a bit of right. window shopping <laughs> exactly window shopping or, or even journaling could be something that you do or unsubscri- unsubscribing from like you know promotional emails oh, or yes. um, you know just sort of like the, the notifications that come up when there's a big sale and things like that so all of these things could be helpful in terms of practical short-term tips. But in reality, when you're trying to move past an addiction, because you can go from one addiction to another addiction very easily. So you can stop the shopping addiction by setting all of those things, but then you'll just jump into, let's say, eating addiction. Or if it's something else, it could be gambling or it could be alcohol or it could be whatever it is. So essentially, you have to get to the root cause. And the root cause is that you're dissociating from from your own feelings. So Short term, you can use those practical tips, but in essence, you really want to start learning how to reconnect to your body, reconnect to your feelings, 
and reconnect to your true self. Mm-hmm. Message here saying to um, overcome the feeling of compulsive buying, I put the things on my wish list. Uh, this is on Amazon now. I have thousands of stuff that I was about to buy but not, it works, but not always, these delaying tactics. Tharai, we've had a couple of messages which have kind of alluded to friendships and relationships, and I, I wondered what impact perhaps you've seen in clinic or through studies on, I mean, shopping addiction in particular here, when it comes to marriages, because often shared finances, you know, hiding purchases, secretive behaviour, secret credit cards, this, this can unravel really, really quickly, not just in terms of your life, but your partner's as well. Absolutely, because not only are we talking about um, a financial burden that could happen on the on the couple, but also because of the e- extreme uh, self-esteem uh, difficulties that a person has because of how much they're disconnecting from them from themselves and escaping from their feelings. What ends up happening is that dissociation within themselves also happens to be a dissociation from their partner. So if you can't connect to your own emotions, it becomes very difficult for you to be able to connect to your partner and their emotions as well. So that puts a strain on the relationship. That's on top of the fact that you're now spending money that both of you are maybe contributing to something else. But on top of that, there's a level of betrayal that could come from the fact that you're hiding the, the compulsive shopping that you're mm-hmm. actually engaging in as well. Or, and this is where it gets really bad, is that where you start to go into debt and could put the, the couple and and both of your, your well-being at, in harm's way because of a massive amount of debt that could come up from the compulsive shopping. It's a big topic, to be honest. I was kind of expecting... Uh... A few messages about, you know, I bought this, I bought that. But I think an awful lot of people, as you say, are perhaps completely dissociating with what, what we're going through. And this is just how those feelings are manifesting in behavior. And as you say, addiction can take all sorts of different forms. But when we are, it's so easy to shop online now. It's so easy to click through on an Instagram post. It's so easy to reply um, on, a, on an email that often comes at a vulnerable time of the day. Um, and thank you for those practical tips. And of course, help is out there. Dr. Thry, I really appreciate your insights on this topic this afternoon. Um, and you can be found there at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, your whole team, Dr. Thry clinical psychologist thank you so much have a wonderful week ahead and we'll catch up very you, soon Helen. indeed don't do any shopping over the weekend uh, i've got to do do you know what do you know what i need to do i need to do christmas shopping i need to but i need is a big word no, need is a big word stop analyzing. Sometimes we can make christmas gifts oh, for each other yeah have you met my children <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's a, it is something to be definitely more mindful of. I like the idea of taking a pause. I like this point about adding to the wish list and uh, not being so, as you say, compulsive. Dr. Thrayer, always a pleasure. You can find her at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. talking health this hour and news just this week from new research presented at the British Thoracic Society revealed that patients who suffered from asthma ran a double risk of severe attack after COVID-19 restrictions were removed. It's so that as they were lifted, fewer people wearing face coverings, no social mixing and subsequently a higher risk of acute respiratory infections. Now, asthma affects more than 30 million people globally. Chances are you have it or you know someone who has it. So what do you need to know about this condition? Joining us now, Dr. Syed Ashad Hussain is an experienced consultant respiratory physician. Three decades of clinical experience working in the UK and the NHS. He's now at King's College Hospital. On hand to answer my questions and your questions. Doctor, how are you today? Yeah, thank you very much. I'm okay. 
get ready for a busy hour because yes. I think an awful lot of people have a lot of questions and uncertainties about asthma and we really need some help when it comes to treatment, but also the future of treatment. What, you know, what's happening in the world? Before we get into the text line and the nitty gritty, can you explain in very simple terms what asthma is and what we know about what causes it? So asthma is a chronic condition of the airways. It is a condition which is variable. So what happens in this condition, the airway becomes tight and narrow. So when the airways become tight and narrow, people become symptomatic. So symptoms that are very important to understand are that people will have cough. People will have shortness of breath. People will have a wheeze. Wheeze Mm -hmm. is a whistling noise that comes from the chest. And they could have, again, chest tightness along with all these symptoms. There are some problems at the night time as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, making sure that um, we are, um, you know, presenting these symptoms to a clinician, especially a pulmonologist, if any of these are present, and could suggest that somebody is running an asthma as a diagnosis or has problems with asthma. Now, when it comes to etiology of asthma, why and what happens, it is a condition that is very prevalent in um, people who have allergies, mm. uh, who are atopic, and, and, and uh, there is a genetic link to this. So about 50, 40 to 50% of our patients would have a genetic link that somebody in their family would have the problem. Interesting. And, and it, would it be asthma in, in particular? Because in my family, I have eczema, my brother has asthma, my dad has asthma. You know, it's all this kind of yeah. mix of conditions, I guess. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So atopic dermatitis, skin problems, uh, hay fever, mm. all these things could be related. And these are the particular individuals who we call as atopic. And um, they are more prone to having these, uh, um, you know, asthma problem. There are about, um, you know, hundred more than 100 genes that have been discovered, which uh, could depict somebody having asthma. So there is a genetic link, but a lot of it is environmental as well. And well, that's then, what I wanted to ask you in terms absolutely. of the time you spent in the UK. I mean, yeah. hay fever yeah. was a fun yeah. one, but what about dust here in the UAE? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it is a very uh, important um, factor, the dust in, in, in the atmosphere, because coming from UK, the problems uh, I have noticed was more for the pollen. Mm-hmm. The pollen count goes high in certain seasons, and then you see a lot of asthma sufferers uh, coming up with the symptoms into the clinic. But um, in UAE and in Middle East in particular, there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere. And and there is estimates that about 5% more than what North American uh, report of asthmas are we see in UAE. So we are seeing a bigger number. Uh, the recent estimate has been around 10 to 14%. That's huge. Which I think is a conservative uh, assessment from what well, I've seen well, that's what I was coming from you, UK. Because yeah. surely it, it takes some time to get a diagnosis because people don't necessarily know who to go to and it can be misdiagnosed quite a lot as well. Um, and also some people might just think, well, it's a fitness level problem. You know, it's, I'm just naturally short of breath. So what what would happen in clinic in order to reach a diagnosis of asthma? What yeah. are you testing for and looking for, Dr. Yeah, Sainz? it's a very difficult diagnosis sometimes to achieve or get because on my start of my discussion, I said it is a variable disease. Now, variable disease means that on a good day, the patient is good. Mm-hmm. On a bad day, they are not good. So it could change from one day to the other. This is a very important fact in, in, in asthma problems. But when they come to us, we obviously go through a history. And in that history, I've just talked about that they'll get these symptoms. Nighttime symptoms are very important. The other thing they will tell us is that any smells, any fragrance, 
any any change of atmospheric conditions or change in the um, temperature of the room, going from an air-conditioned room to a non-air-conditioned room, or having, uh, you know, uh, an environment which has, uh, you know, uh, deodorants or sprays or uh, some sort of uh, – it could, could also lead that. And say with the work environment, if people are working in dusty – Exposed in dusty environments, especially around the time that we have the dust storms, that that this does aggravate the whole problem. I wanted to ask you about that report we've heard about COVID nineteen kind of doubling down on the symptoms that asthma sufferers have had. I'm I'm sure you probably found the last couple of years really fascinating from an academic point of view as a pulmonologist. Right. What are we seeing in terms of long term effects of COVID nineteen on asthma figures and sufferers themselves? Yeah, so as we know that asthmatics, when they get a viral infection, their control becomes bad. We have seen, I mean, I've been here for working for one year now in, in King's College, and I've seen a lot of patients uh, post-COVID developing cough, shortness of breath, sometimes wheeze, so asthma-type symptoms. So there was an increase of patients after COVID that we've seen coming through to our clinics where where um they would have those symptoms. But it is important, as you touched on the topic of diagnosing, so I think it's important, one of the three tests which are very, very important, one of them is called exhaled nitric oxide test. This is a breath analyzing test we could do in our clinic, in pulmonology clinic. And and, and this gives us the level of inflammation and the allergy that is there at that particular moment. Mm-hmm. So we can do a spot check like a breath analyzing test is called pheno. The other test that is very good is the CBC, where we check for eosinophil count. And the third thing is an immunoglobulin E, very particular for asthma. So these three tests are like very much the biomarkers that are used around the world to diagnose asthma. Apart from that, we do spirometry, which is a blow test. We check lung volumes. And we can also do other tests like methacholine challenge testing in difficult cases. We sometimes need x-rays as well as CT scan. So there is quite a few investigative uh, workout we can arrange. Now, if you're worried about somebody having pets in the house, like a cat, recent entry into the house, and then they will have high um, dog dander or cat epithelium, and that could be checked in the allergy test we do, same as I've touched on dust. House dust mite and also the dust allergy is a big factor. So these things could be checked from the clinic, and I think it's a difficult diagnosis to make, but mm-hmm. it is very important to get the diagnosis right. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Joining us in the studio now is Dr. Saeed Ashad Hussain, an experienced consultant respiratory physician. Um, he's at King's College Hospital. He's with the NHS for years. And we're talking about treatment of asthma. And something that I've seen in the headlines and I've seen in studies, and I'm wondering a little bit more about it, doctor, is biologics. Can you tell us a little bit about what role this can play, especially when it comes to severe asthmatics? Yeah, thank you very much, Helen. And it is very important to discuss this. This is a very modern uh, treatment that has come into helping us in asthma care. And usually those patients benefit who have moderate to severe type of asthma. So this is slightly a higher category of asthma. And how the biologics work is that uh, they are in an injectable form. They're given as an injection. But they're prepared in, in either a virus or a mice or, or, or a where, you know, it's like a very a modern treatment, what we call precise medical treatment and asthma. So you're affecting those cells which cause the allergy in the airways, in the lungs. So, so this is like they are monoclonal antibodies. They are created against certain specific cells, the cytokines. 
So we, we, we effect that by just giving an injection to our patients. The advantage is that they have less amount of exacerbations after having this treatment where they were having bad exacerbation. Mm-hmm. If they're on steroid tablets, we are able to wean down their steroid tablets. And, and they have better quality of life, I which is very important. I was just about to say, quality of life and not having to think about medication the whole time. Mm, yeah. We've got Renny joining us now to explain a little bit about her asthma um, over the years. Renny, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about when your asthma started and just how bad it got? Yeah, thanks, Ellen. See, my, I was diagnosed with asthma like around five years back. And my condition was pretty bad and it was very severe kind of asthma. I had very frequent asthma attacks. I couldn't, I was not able to breathe properly. I was on completely higher doses of steroids because no other medication was working for me except those steroids. And as you know that we can't take steroids for a longer period of time because they have very negative effects on our body. Mm-hmm. So my doctor, I was back in India at that time and then my doctor suggested me to go for this biological he suggested that these so you've had the injections. Things. Okay, and, and can you tell us yeah, a little uh, bit about what your experience has been, any side effects, if you've got, had any, you know, any data markers that you, know, you can really measure your, your progress? How has it gone? See, after I started taking the biologicals, my health condition improved tremendously. I was not only I was able to do my household chores with quite a ease, but I was able to do you know, like walk and run. And recently, I completed this my Dubai five kilometer run. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> um, is that something yeah. you would have you would have never been able to do that five years ago? No, 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 no. It was a very it was it has become a luxury for me to walk few steps in, in my house only. You know. Oh, really? uh, after taking biologicals, you know, I'm uh, then I shifted to Dubai uh, because of my husband's job conditions and and for, uh, because of that, you know shift uh, process my medication was stopped for like around four to five months mm-hmm. so my symptoms they started occurring again and then i consulted dr saya there in dubai and he after going through my medical history advised me to go for this biological oh, all thanks to dr saya then king's hospital that i am perfectly perfectly fine as of now oh i'm so pleased to hear that thank you so much i think it's really important to hear from people who are living through conditions and and doing really, really well. Um, a question here um, that's come in from Glenn saying, who is a good candidate? You said moderate to severe. Um, what about age group? Could a, ch- could a child take this medication, Is this injection? Yeah, there is uh, very much advances in the field of biologic treatment, and we have at least six biologic injections treatment available, but there is more in the pipeline. And in Europe, there has been more progress, which hopefully will bring to UAE to our patients. So the 12 years old patient can be treated with the biologics. So this is very much good for people who are are in a younger adolescent age group that there is some cure where in the past I've seen patients being on high-dose steroids, having all those bad effects of weight gain, Mm -hmm. thinning of their skin, thinning of their bones, and, and, and feeling bad, frustrated, depressed, and also developing diabetes. So I think this is very much a breakthrough in care of asthma management and with the biologic treatment, we are able to wean down at least in 70 to 80 percent of our patients who are on tablet steroids. But I have to clarify a difference between uh, tablet steroids and inhaled corticosteroids. Yes, please do, because we've had a number of messages asking about treatments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can you please give us some clarity there, Dr. Said? Yeah. So there has been some change in the guidelines for asthma management because there has been some difficulty with people taking short-acting beta agonists like Ventolin. Mm-hmm. These are reliever medications, but people sometimes hook on to these medications, use it very often. These are short-acting medications. 
that can have a, a had problems of tachycardia, meaning fast heart rate and nausea and vomiting. So I think, you know, it is a good uh, medicine when it's used in the right context and occasional usage. But when you're using it too often, that means you should be on a better preventer. Now, preventer inhalers usually are the inhalers which have inhaled corticosteroids. And most of it gets absorbed into the lung. There is some absorption in the body, but most of it gets absorbed into the lungs, into the airways, where there's inflammatory process, there's allergic process going on. And sometimes without that treatment, that can't be made better. The symptoms can't be made better. So it is not the same as when you're taking tablet steroids. Yes. The tablet steroids mean you have a lot of metabolic absorption. So there is a difference between inhaled corticosteroids and the tablet or oral form of steroids. Doctor, let's just go to the text line and squeeze in one question before the headlines. Aziz is saying, I'm asthmatic, usually well controlled. I had COVID in March and have struggled with breathlessness ever since. I had two courses, please forgive my pronunciation, of prednisoline um, since March, which have given me some normality for four to five weeks. Then I'm back to square one. Struggle to go up the stairs without gasping. I'm due to see the doctor next week and I want to ask for steroids again, but I only had my last course in September. How often can you have them? Great question, Aziz. So, Helen, this is a, a very good question because I wanted to address this issue where in today's day and age with the biologic uh, treatment that we can give in an injectable form, uh, people should not be on tablet steroids anymore for their asthma control. And if they're having more than two exacerbations in the year where they required steroid tablets, they should be considered for biologic treatment. This is an indication for using biologic treatment. And you've heard Renu just now how her life has transformed. She has to have her correct uh, asthmatic medications. When she moved from India, she wasn't on that. So we optimized that medication and then got her back onto the biologic. And since she's been on biologic, she's never looked back. She's in the marathon. So a lot of our patients, apart from Renu, has progressed that well on biologics. And the reason the biologics are there is to get the steroid tablets down if you're requiring it too often. So we prevent those effects, side effects especially. Someone's asking, how about the risk of reactivating old TB with biologics? Yeah, we haven't had any uh, experience of ourselves. It's a very new drug. Um, this is like being the biologics have been there about six years. And, and one of the biologics has just been introduced this year in 2021. So you can imagine how new this treatment and how advanced this treatment is. And it's progressing in a very good direction. But I have not had much uh, to go through and find out anybody with reactivation of TB through biologics. I even have some patients who have severe asthma who are on biologics and, 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 and are, we are also treating infections, chronic infections. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Talking asthma on the show this afternoon, who better to invite into the studio than Dr. Saeed Arshad Hussain, an experienced consultant respiratory physician, more than three decades of clinical experience. He's now here at King's College Hospital. And we're going to have a bit of a quick fire round on the, on the uh, text line, doctor, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, a really important question, and I'm so glad this came in, saying, do children really outgrow asthma or does it lie underneath and creeps out later? Yes, this is correct. Uh, people grow out of asthma. And this is also correct that people do develop in late age. So asthma could be a late onset. But uh, children all the time grow out of it. And, 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 and that is not unheard of. Or not a- Let's fingers crossed that's mm. the case. Um, no name on this message saying, what are the benefits of using a spacer, please? Does it really matter if we forget it when we travel? We've got a four-year-old son who has the purple inhaler daily. 
Yeah. I mean, there are quite a bit of a variety of inhalers available, but I think I have my, if somebody asked me my choice of inhaler, I would say I would use a LCA PMDI device and I always advise it to be used with a spacer device. What so does I'm, a spacer do? Yeah. So the, what spacer does is, 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 is the fine particles that are released from the inhaler with the tidal flow of these particles, it gets deeper into the small airways. Because sometimes the problem is narrowing of the small airways and to get the particles into the deepest part of the lung, deepest part of the airways is very important. Okay. And also it does away with any difficulty with coordination because in some inhalers which you are not using with a spacer device, you have to coordinate with the timing. Of, yeah, that's right. Of, of which is the, difficult for children as so well. So it is especially difficult for children, but some adults find it very difficult to coordinate. So I prefer that as my choice to use with the inhalers, a spacer device, because okay. it gets the particles deeper into the airway. Um, a message here saying, great timing. Hi, both. We're beginning the asthma pathway with my nine-year-old, who's about 140 centimetres tall and 30 kilos. Peak flow is ranging from 200 to 230 pre-inhaler and can reach 250 to 300 after 20 minutes of inhaler use. I have no idea what's normal for him or other children. He's less, less breathless, very active child, but still coughing lots and struggling to recover from the cough. We're going back to the doctors in the week, but I'm just feeling a bit lost and clueless. So any friendly advice would be gratefully received. That's from Kiru. Yeah, I have a confession to make that I'm not a pediatric doctor. So I do not see patients who are like not adolescent age group. But from what the description is, I'm sure she needs to see a doctor with her child. And, and, and sometimes it's difficult to predict what a peak flow should be. So it varies from an individual uh, to another individual. So would you, would you keep a diary but then? The to peak see flow what's meter is a very, very useful uh, piece of equipment. All it is is that you're blowing into a hollow tube called the peak flow meter. When you blow into this hollow tube, it gives you certain readings and that have to be jotted down morning and evening. And it produces a pattern. And what we are looking as doctors from this uh, graph or pattern is, is a variability of the airway size. So it's measuring airways and we're looking for variability of the airway size. If there's variability, it does suggest asthma. As I started my talk, asthma is a chronic but variable disease. Mm-hmm. So if the size of the airways could change and that is very nicely depicted on a peak flow meter chart. So I think a peak flow is a very useful thing. Uh, the child needs certainly to be seeing somebody with uh, a pediatric pulmonology interest. Um, uh, I do see patients who are either adolescent or adult patients with asthma. But principle and treatment are similar. <clears throat> Let's go to Leona, who says, I was diagnosed with mild asthma as a child. Now, in my late 20s, I only take my blue inhaler when I'm ill. I've always just thought being short of breath is normal, so never express concerns to a doctor. Um, usually I sit down when it passes, but I'm now short of breath every day, whether it's walking upstairs, going on a walk. Sometimes it makes me feel dizzy and um, I avoid exercise apart from walking as I can get to a right state with my breathing. Since last Saturday, I've been suffering with what I think is the flu. I've developed a dry cough and I'm so short of breath, even between the coughing fits. My blue inhaler isn't doing anything. What can I do to help? You need to go and see Dr. Saeed. There's no doubt about it that you need to see me. But uh, as a general rule, I must say what, uh, because your topic that you brought out to the highlight is an important one. And and a lot of people just hook on to the reliever inhaler, which I said earlier is the Ventolin inhaler. Uh, in the newer and uh, global guidelines for asthma control, GINA guidelines we call them, they are now relying more on long-acting uh, beta agonists with inhaled corticosteroid like Formetrol. So we are suggesting other inhalers 
instead of the Ventolin. The reason is, as I said earlier, the tachycardia, uh, the nausea, vomiting, the short effect of that inhaler, and it does not prevent things getting bad. Mm-hmm. So whenever people have to use more than three or four times a Ventolin inhaler, they ought to see a pulmonologist and they would want to put them onto the right inhaler, which would be, as I explained, inhaled corticosteroid in combination with the long-acting beta agonist. We also use sometimes anticholinergic agents along with that and leukotriene-inhibiting tablets. So there are about three other treatments that can be helped. And you could have a symptom-free life. This is my message to everybody who's hearing today, Helen, that, you know, asthma is not a disabling disease. It can be controlled very, very well. Mm -hmm. A lot of athletes have asthma and they're running for marathon. And you've seen one of my patients. She's participated in in a recent marathon. So I think in today's day and age, there is no room for saying if you have asthma, you should have shortness of breath and cough and you should bear with it. No, we should have correct diagnosis and correct treatment with good quality of life. We've got time for two last questions. One is from listener Dom, who's saying, um, how does the doctor feel about nebulizers in children? Because I'm hearing mixed reports. Interesting question. And then I've got a final question. Now, as I said to you off air, my daughter has asthma and we've had many a nebulizer experience. But when I've spoken to doctors, similar to Dom, I've heard kind of mixed reports. I've had friends from the UK who said, we've never seen a nebulizer in my life. Why would children get this? And then I've had people who've seen huge differences in terms of their child's lung health. What's your take on them? Certainly. I'm talking from the adult perspective yes. uh, on patient care. And in that, I can I can tell you that um, in UAE, I've seen a lot of uh, uh, nebulizers Love being used nebulizer. compared to the experience I had in, in UK. Now, I can understand that we have a higher amount of um, dust and, and pollution, and that probably causes a lot of people who asthma is not controlled. But I think there's an inner fear of people not using the inhalers, which are preventer inhalers. And I think this is a very important message, Helen, from this uh, talk today to go out that, you know, instead of uh, uh, relying on short-acting treatment, you should be having preventer treatment, which should prevent your symptoms requiring nebulizers. So mm. I tell my patient that if I'm getting a good optimized care and treatment for you, you should not be using nebulizers. But nebulizers on the other side is a good treatment because it can do a bronchodilatation and can help patient in a bad symptom situation. So symptom control can be helped. But as long as you can rely on the individual not to overuse the nebulizer, not to seek help, you know, those kind of worries that clinicians carry, that if somebody is using nebulizer, they're not come to the hospital. Mm -hmm. They not seek attention from a pulmonologist. And that is where it goes wrong. And deaths have been and mortality has been related to this. So I think this is very important that nebulizers can be used, but it should not be required. It's like a backup situation. And now you go into a spare wheel drive when your car has a punctured tire <laughs> and you don't Good use analogy. the space. Yeah, you don't use the punctured tire, especially in a Korean car. They would make the, the tire, uh, which would not run. So you have to go to a workstation very quickly and get your tire changed. It's a short, sharp fix. But if, as you say, if if that condition is being properly managed by you in terms of your medication, but also those medications have been properly prescribed by the right physician, it shouldn't be needed. One last question for me, and we've only got a few seconds. For everyone listening today, in terms of overall lung health, is there anything we should or shouldn't be doing Every it's single day. A, it's a very, very important question. I can't be fitted into a few <laughs> seconds, Helen. <laughs> Sorry. But, but one message I must convey here, that smoking and asthma don't go match up at all. If somebody is smoking uh, and they are going to have a bad control of their asthma, 
So I think the important message is, apart from other things we talked about, that you know pets can have uh, things in there, uh, dust can cause it. But I think the smoking has a major, major effect on making things bad for asthmatics. And the inhalers don't work when you're using it. The cilia, the policeman goes to sleep in your airways. So please, mm-hmm. please, if you haven't made your decision before today, make your decision to quit smoking. Dr. Say, thank you so much for your time. If we weren't able to get to your message, I apologise, but you can find Dr. Saeed Ashad Hussain there at King's College Hospital. And if you'd like his details, I'll be very happy to share them. Great to have you in the UAE, sir, and thank you for joining it's us. It's a pleasure this there. Hour. Thank you. Thank you. We will continue to uh, talk health throughout the show. Um, and don't forget, if you would want doctors detailed, by all means, drop me a line on 4001. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. Looking like Tinkerbell, we're delighted to be joined by Alexandra. She is a social media and business creative strategist from Alex's House of Social. It is the season to start shopping, but how can you get the attention of your customers when there's so much competition out there? Small businesses, this is for you. Alex, great to have you in the studio. I know you're incredibly busy right now because there's an awful lot of people that need an awful lot of advice for navigating what is a really exciting time, but also can be choppy, uncharted waters. And I wondered... In terms of general advice, we're going to get specifics. We have got messages coming in. Um, how can small businesses really prepare for the next few months, taking into account the, the pulse of the market right now? Yeah, I'm so happy to be back. <laughs> yes, that's a really good question. So let's just go straight into it. My best advice is for all small businesses to just take a moment, sit down, take a deep breath and really ask themselves, what do I want out of my festive season? A lot of small businesses are not even taking the time to just think. Just think, how much time do I have? How much budget do I have? How much team support do I have? Mm -hmm. All of that is going to impact a lot what you want. And then, do I want to make sales? Do I want to drive money? Or the season of giving, do I just want to give value? Festive season doesn't just have to be about making money and driving sales. You could literally go all in on just doing the gift of giving. Mm -hmm. So sit down, plan, strategize, look at how much budget, how much resources you have, then you make that plan. And see how aligned your budget and resources are to actually what your goals are. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's we are going to come to some common small business pitfalls. But I would love, because you are looking like a gorgeous little Christmas tree today, for some festive marketing ideas, some free advice here this afternoon, Alex. What comes to mind when you think about small businesses and really maximising eyes on screens, whether it is being at markets and, as you say, kind of reaching those goals? Yeah. So I'm going to start by giving out a ton of ideas. I'm going to go a little fast. I hope people can catch up. Go, go, go. I am going to start with ideas that are not about selling. So if you are thinking about just giving value, you could think about doing giveaways. You could use your leftover stock or just literally anything that you want to do a giveaway. You could do lots of small giveaways or one big gigantic giveaway. Think about collaborating with other small businesses. That's a very smart move to do. It's also going to ease you in on a lot of the work you're going to do. Think about what other small business is going to make sense to yours. If you are selling water bottles, maybe there's another small business that does notebooks. That's such a great sort of like collaboration. So think about how collaborating with other small businesses create content that is festive themed. So this one is for all the consultants and coaches out there like me, for example, 
what kind of content will bring value to the people that you want to hire you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could think about giving free delivery for a short period. You could also think about giving another free service during this time, some little small giveaways. I'm actually doing giveaways today. If you're listening to this segment today, tag us on your Instagram stories. I'm giving free one-on-ones today. So there you go. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Surprise and delight. Maybe for uh, people that have bought the most from you, people that follow you every day. So surprise and delight is a huge one. I love that. And Mm -hmm. we were seeing a lot of this going viral on social about people paying it forward. You know, do you want, do you, I, I, I can give you this product now or you can pay it forward to someone else. And this is be. I think we all just need a bit of feel good right now. Yeah. And so the gift of giving is so good. Or, or you can also tie in uh, 5%, 10% of all the purchase during festive season is going to go towards a charity or a CSR initiative that you want. Mm-hmm. That's such a sweet way to show people that your brand also cares as well. Mm-hmm. So those were on the gift of giving. Okay. Do you want me to go into yeah. selling? Let's make okay, some money. Okay, let's make some money. All right, gift cards, guys, small businesses. If you don't have gift cards in your strategy, what are you doing? It's the gift of season. Gift cards is such a, a small, no, low-hanging fruit strategy to do. Festive season products webpage. Your webpages need to have a festive season section with all of the selected products. That Making you... it easy for people. Yes, and you can add in plugins with snow, make it really festive. People love that gift guides. So think about who is your consumers? Who are your audience? If you're looking for family, sisters, brothers, put together a gift guide on how your products make sense. Um, for We've talked about that one. Festive limited editions. Oh my God, this is one of the best ones. Products or services that only exist during the festive season time. So there's a limited you know, time to it. There's also an exclusivity. They only, you know how chocolate brands do that really well? Oh, I was thinking about, you know, pumpkin spice lattes, for yes. example. There's a reason why these strategies work because everybody's like, oh, I need to get my, you know, my, my pumpkin spice latte or the Cadbury's or whatever other brands that do specialties during the Christmas season. So festive limited editions is a great one. Um, what else do I have here? You can do a big holiday sale. So you could do it that during two weeks, three weeks, there's a big, you know, holiday sale happening. Doing live content is huge. During the live content, you can share codes. So the things that you're showing on the lives, you can do that. Um, Festive email marketing campaigns. Double down on your email marketing or your WhatsApp if you have a lot of WhatsApp content. I'm looking at you because I was thinking about what I'd spent over the last few weeks. (laughs) The Black Friday, right? Yeah. And a lot of them did come from emails. I was was in the mall. Yes, 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 yes. Trying to clear out my email inbox and... uh, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I had like 75 emails. I was like, oh, no, it was so much work to do. And I was like, oh, no, they're all emails from companies that I'm engaged with. So and happy. I would say there were at least two in there that I actually spent on the spot. And oh. I was like, Black Friday sale for my spin class that I go to oh, twice a week. Oh, that's amazing. And I think it, it works. we are going to be talking about shopping addiction later in the show. So there is a balance to this argument, by the way. But it definitely works if it's a company that you're already engaged with and you already Absolutely. have a kind of relationship with rather 100%. than being like cold call. Someone sold my information. 100%. Different situation. Alexandra from Alex's House of Socialists here. She's a social media and business creative strategist on hand to help you with any small business woes you might be having. Alex, you said off air then a lot of small businesses are having a bit of a tough time right now. What's, what's going on? What's the pulse? It's very up and down, right? So what do we do when the market is like this? And so I really hope all small businesses are listening because 
This is the time now, the next three, four months, that all small business entrepreneurs, we are going to be tested. And I'm saying we because I'm a small business too, so I don't you know, set myself apart. This is a time we're going to be tested. So what do we need to do? First of all, we need to be listening in, leaning in really carefully to what people are telling us on social media, either through comments, either through feedback, either through the customer service. Like, So start paying more attention to the behavior of your community, of what people are saying, how are they reacting. Second of all, this is now the time that you need to double down in your marketing. A lot of the reasons why you're not being able to put a pulse in understanding why are suddenly people not buying anymore, but last month they did, or why did they now disappear for two months? And maybe before summer, I was making so much good money. You need to now double down on your marketing and in your creativity. You have to get more creative with your marketing, your sales, your campaigns, your offering, your content. The more you're going to play around your marketing activations, the more you're going to start to learn and understand, oh, so that price point works really well around that messaging, around that creative. Oh, I did that for two weeks crickets, mm. nothing worked. The reason you're not going to be able to put a pulse into it, you're not doing enough to learn and test it. Double down on your creativity with your marketing. So listening to your customers and who are you not listening to? You've, yes. had, you've had some people giving out some dodgy advice. <laughs> it's their friends. I just want small businesses to stop listening to friends that don't know anything about what you are doing. It breaks my heart when I hear stories and, you know, clients are coming to me feeling, you know, oh, I did this video and I worked so hard at it. But someone told me that putting my face on it with my products is cheapening my brand. Whoever is the friend that said this, I'm sure they said it with all of their good intent, but they don't know what they're talking about. And the most dangerous part is that these small business owners are listening to this. Mm -hmm. So now they're feeling sad. Mm -hmm. Now they're, 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 you know, they're going down. That sets them back hours of work. That even sets them back days because they were so enthusiastic about making that real, about making that TikTok. There's nothing more powerful than your face and your products. It's how every small business will set themselves apart from the crowd. Let's Let go to the text line because we're yes. going to run out of time. Yes, Tahira yes, saying, yes. saying, thank you both. This is my first holiday season as a new business. Curious how I should communicate to customers if orders go wrong or are taking longer than expected, I don't want to annoy anyone. Okay, such a good question. This is going to come down to communication. Actually, let me take that back. It's going to come down to over communication across all of your channels. As soon as I land on your website, if we talk about website, you need to have a really good, clear banner that tells me that. Place your orders by this date so that I can assure delivery. If orders are past this date, we could be looking at delays. Manage so expectations from manage the outside. Manage across email marketing, your website, your WhatsApp, your WhatsApp, your follow-up emails, over-communicate this even on your social media channels. Go, better to be over-communicating this than under-communicating. Alex, we've run out of time. Oh, Thank yay. you so, so much for your time today. For anyone that does want to avail of your, as you are saying, free one-on-ones or more in-depth consultation for small businesses across social media and creativity, what's the best way of getting in touch? Yes, so today I'm giving free one-on-ones to anyone who's listening to us. They there need to go. tag us on their Instagram stories and I'll be picking winners. You can join my free Rebel Academy, 30 plus free courses, and you can t contact me for one-on-ones paid consultancy. So yes. You're a superstar. Thank you so, so much. I'm wishing you a wonderful season ahead. And if anyone does want Alex's details, drop me a little message on 4001. I'd be very happy to send them your way.
We're talking postpartum care. Mexico has quarantina, a 30-day rest period with the family. Um, China has a similar practice of doing the month. Uh, Korean families practice three-week course of seclusion and seaweed soup. Eastern European women are secluded for the first month after birth. In addition to that secluded rest, there's postpartum body massage, abdominal binding, really common. Um, So it is quite easy for me as a Brit who's... In the NHS, you kind of kicked out after a few hours to romanticise these practices and wish that perhaps we could do things a little bit differently. We are talking now about postpartum care. A mother requires help, care, support, emotional and practical to deal with that fourth trimester. But here in the UAE, as I'm sure you don't need me to tell you, many mothers are here on their own without the support of their, their mums close friends as well. So there has seen a big rise in demand in midwives and home nurses. We're finding out a little bit more about what does happen. And joining us now from Emirates Home Nursing is the general manager of Alka with Chandani with us today. Um, can I, and you're a mum of twins, and I'm just curious what your own fourth trimester was like. Were you being massaged and secluded and fed seaweed soup, Alka? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having You're me here, very Helen. You're welcome. And uh, yes, having twins is no less than a nightmare. <laughs> Believe me. And But my blessing <laughs> was honesty. that... It is, it is. My blessing was I have my I have my mom, my parents in town. So yes, I had the help of my mother. I had the help of my mother-in-law. And I ensured I had any kind of help you have. Because it's not easy, mm-hmm. especially the fourth trimester, which is basically the period after birth where a mother's body is obviously changing, going back to the non-pregnant self. Uh, A lot of issues arise when when that happens. And today today you have the convenience of having these professional midwives or the health, baby healthcare experts, which really makes the life of a mother easy. It, you need not be a first time mother whenever you are yeah. pregnant, it does happen. I mean, every birth is a different experience. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I wish I'd done things differently, to be <laughs> honest. I, I, I read an interesting quote a while ago, which was, you know, spend the first week in bed, the second week on the sofa. Oh, wow. And I was out of the door trying to be super mum within a few days. And I ended up getting really, really sick, yes. really sick. Yes, yes. Um, because I just pushed myself too hard and I was trying to do it all and didn't perhaps accept the help that... Right. Because was your body available. wasn't ready for it. Well, I just, I just thought, I just, know, I just thought it's almost like a sign of weakness. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a mum now. I should know how to do this, and I should be able to absolutely boss it. Right. And I would definitely, not that I'm planning on having a third, but I would, I would have done things differently if I, if I thought about it. That's good and I guess know. I think, I think for many, it is that kind of home comfort as well because new mums. I mean, I just doubted absolutely everything. I was googling constantly felt really really alone and with you guys it's a case of having people coming in who know exactly what they're doing right tell us more about that right in fact just to share my own experience also i was actually going by the book of what to expect when you're expecting i hate that book but believe me it didn't help me when the time was required so i did miss that professional care and experience because as you rightly said these all are dha licensed trained professional midwife who help you out with setting your baby's sleep routine which is very important today because a mother needs ample rest ample me time as mm-hmm. you may say uh, especially for if, especially going recovery. back to work in 45 days exactly exactly <laughs> because in UAE, the law is 45 days at maximum and you really, your body has to recoup the entire in 45 days. 
which is actually not enough. But no, it's not. It is not. It is not. We all know that. But uh, the experts do help you because they help set your routines, help to help a child bond with a mother, help with lactation uh, consulting, all this, all this, because these are all experienced ones. So you get that peace of mind and your me time, which you require specially for a quicker recovery. Can I ask about any trends that you've noticed in terms of healthcare that might be shaping home care or and how you're working there at, at Emirates Home Nursing? First comes the digital. I mean, everything is digital today. The online app uh, for your scheduling consultation, they're working pretty well, especially post-COVID. It has become a trend, everything to go online. And uh, one very good uh, device, which is called the Remote Patient Monitoring or RPM in short, that is called. These basically, these devices, they allow the providers to monitor the progress of their patient and receive any alerts if there is an issue. So this has, this facility has actually made home care, home care providers and home care service incredibly comforting for all the patients because Mm -hmm. it is all done at the convenience of your home. A question here from Piero saying, do you offer post-surgery care? We do. That's called the postnatal care and also, sorry, that's called the uh, transitional care. So any surgeries, anything instead of being in the hospital and the risk of catching on any of the infections is always better. So we provide that service, transition from hospital to your home with all the services. So yes, Emirates Home Nursing does provide that. I will send you those details, Pierre. Thank you so, so much. That would be great. Thank you so much. I think it's really interesting thing about doing things in a a different way. Um, So, and as you say, with, the, with people who really know what they're doing. Those babies <laughs> don't come with a manual. Oh, they don't. But they oh, might come me, with, an, with an extra pair of hands. Thank oh, you yes. so, so much. Thank you so much for having Alka me, Helen. joining us from Emirates Home Nursing. If you do want details, by all means, drop me a message, 4001. I'd be very happy to connect you. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai I 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai I 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai I in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.